Welcome to another edition of the Chip and Gary Tennis Show. Um, most of the time we have guests on here that uh, either Chip knows or I know, but uh, we got a fellow on here this time that we both know and have some background with. Uh, fortunate to have a guy named Brett Stevenson on the air who uh, grew up in my home state of Kentucky and we were contemporaries played a little tennis together I think he beat me in doubles but I think I was drunk I, I might have been drunk at the time <laughs> yes you were <laughs> <laughs> but anyway Br Brett welcome to have you um what's going on Thanks, with Gary. you well it just didn't just happen to give you a call up Gary I think that's fantastic what you and Hoops are doing uh I can't think of any two bigger serves that I ever saw or had to play with or against and what's interesting is you know Hoops was a straight banger just bringing that 140 fireball and then you had that big kick serve that bounced up on the deuce side up on the fence so uh, it was really interesting to to see two different guys and two different size players with such great big serves so I think that's fantastic what you guys are doing well you know Brett, thank you. A after you took me out in the juniors doubles uh, one tournament in Lexington, I understand that uh, you, and I didn't know Chip Hooper at the time, but I understand you got to know him and you all played a little doubles together before your career was over. That's right, and, and uh, I actually met Chip through Mel Purcell, who we all know, and uh, Chip Hooper and Mel won the national 21-unders down there at Corpus Christi the first year they had that 21-under circuit, and they won the doubles. So I talked Hoops into playing with me the second year. I think Hoops won the short, but he was a better doubles player, so he wanted to carry me along. <laughs> and uh, we had a couple pretty good wins. We beat uh, Mike Gandolfo and uh, what was his little buddy's name? I can't think of his name. I don't know. It might have been. Uh, it could have been Pender Murphy. I they uh, talk about a big server. Mike Gandolfo would be up there with Chip Hooper in power serves because he's another guy that could really bring it. So that was a, a tremendous win, whoever Mike was playing with. And and then who'd you get? Who else did you get? It was Egan Adams. So he oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, Egan was a great win. Great win. Yeah, yeah. And then we beat uh, Naduka Odazar and uh, David Dallin. Wow. Another and great then, win. Yeah, so we were cruising along. I played the year before Jeff Etterbeek. I don't know if you ever knew him. Sure I did. Sure oh, I did. He had, a hell, he had a hell of a service return. I think probably he and Mel Purcell had two of the best service, service returns I ever saw. If not, if and, I'm not mistaken, I, I remember when we played Michigan at NCAAs, I played Jeff, and I, I want to say that he had a, one of the early two-handed backhands. Is that correct? That's right, two-handed backhand. That's right, he sure did. Uh -huh. And just a great guy and a real cerebral guy, kind of like a Mark Beekler type player. Uh -huh. and, uh, Who was he you know, playing he with? Uh, he played with me. Oh, the first year. Okay, gotcha. And then second year I played with Hoops. But, but Gary, I've always bought in the first rule of doubles. What's you that? Know what that is? Find the best part of your <laughs> Well, Brett, you were no slouch, and I mean that. I mean that. You were a tremendous slouch, as Chevy Chase would have said on Caddyshack. But anyway, yeah. So, so you guys, uh, was that uh, was that tournament uh, up in uh, Columbia University's courts up there in the east, or was it still at Corpus? Corpus Christi, there at uh -huh. H.E. Butts Tennis Center. I see. And, uh, yeah, 
was always, you know, at the end of June, it was, you know, 85, 90 degrees. Humidity was 85, 90. And it was so hot, you had to bring an extra pair of shoes. So you guys cruising along, you're in the borders or semis, and then what happens? Who are you playing? We playing the Robert Van Hoff and oh. Jay Lapidus. Oh. That was back during the old nine-point tiebreaker. And we're four on the breaker. Hoops makes return to serve. All four players comes in the net. All four players at the net like it used to be. Hoops reaches out that big arm of his and big hand and makes a lob slice volley that's cutting out towards the deuce side. Lobs over there. Both players take off after. They're way over out of the court. I mean, they couldn't have been any further out of the court. Lapis flicks up the easiest little lob. I'm at the net. Just stand there and dump the volley in the bottom of the net. Oh, my gosh. And that I was mean, four all in the top. Of, that was set point. Set, wow. set point. Cahoops takes his racket and just tilts it and launches that thing that goes about three, four hundred yards right out of the AT Budget Tennis Center. Is that right? Across all those houses across the street. How'd that make you feel? <laughs> well, you know me, I want to shake it off and fight, fight for the second <laughs> set. But Hoops was done. I think we lost six, one or six, so the second oh, set. Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh. But uh, it was so bad that I don't blame him. He didn't talk to me for a couple of years after. That's how bad <laughs> that volley was. <laughs> then he, he got into the top 20 of the world. Maybe he forgave you after he was a big shot. Uh, yeah, he got to be 17 in the world. And I was actually living in Paris at the time. I didn't get to see him much. We had a big run in Philadelphia at the indoor tournament. And he got to be 17 in the world. And he was one of the seeds there at the French Open. And uh, so I got to see him over to French Open. I think got to the third round, round of 16 or something. Well, you know, the, the inter interesting thing, because um, most of our viewers or listeners may, may have known Chip. Some might not know that he was six foot six uh, and, and, and just chiseled out of stone. And uh, what amazes me is a guy with a 140-mile-an-hour serve and that big game takes out Jimmy Arias at the French Open, 6-1 in the fifth on clay, and he's just kind of, oh, yeah, well, I did have a win there, Jimmy Arias. But Jimmy Arias was a great clay court player. Oh, you better believe it. And you know what's funny about you see that, Gary, to go back to that Corpus Christi tournament, that was my last year, 21s. And, of course, they used to have 16 seeds. And I talked, I had the two ATP points, so I talked the, I can't remember what his name was, but if I said it, you remember, because it's always the same guy at that ATP Bush Tennis Center. Bob Mapes, Bob Mapes. Bob Mapes, exactly. I talked him into giving me the 16th seed. But then I looked at the list, and he, there was a 15-year-old, and he was a 15th seed. And how in the hell you see the guy 15 years old in the 21-unders? Hmm. And guess who it was? Jimmy Arias. Is that right? Yeah, so he was already won the national, I guess, 16s or 18s at 15, and he was a 15th seed. And the funny thing was, back then, they gave $200 to each seeded player, uh, you know, for expenses, except for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was nice of him. Yeah, that was nice of him. But uh, anyway, you know, people, a lot of people don't know, and, and Mel tells everybody, Hoops, I'm, did, you know, did you know Hoops and 
juniors when he was younger? I knew who he was, but you know how it is when you're three, four years older, you don't really look at the guys that are younger that much. Of course, Mel was, you know, a a contemporary, and we played, so I knew him, and and I knew of Chip because Chip was, you know, top four in the country when he was in the 12, so uh, everybody knew about him. And and then later, you know, when remember him being on the the Davis Cup team uh, in 81 out there in Portland with McEnroe and the boys, but... Tell me about him. He was he wasn't a, a big guy back then. He was tall, but he, he was pretty slender, wasn't he? Well, he wasn't that tall, Gary. Uh, I guess oh. he went he went to Memphis State with Mel, and he was only about six feet tall, maybe six one. And through the juniors, he was always a shorter kind of guy. Hmm. He'll tell you drop shot a lot, lob a lot. You know, pull the players in and pass them. And uh, he went to college. And then came out six foot six, six foot seven. So that's what you start banging them in 140. So you get that nice, steady player who knows not to make mistakes. And you add some size and some power to him, and that makes a heck of a good play court player. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I had a good friend of yours, probably Kerry Stansbury, uh, sure. on radio not too long ago, and. And he and Chip kind of mentioned the same thing, you know, that Chip said he was basically a pusher when he was in the 12s and 14s. And and uh, and so uh, actually Kerry was talking about that. And then when we were doing our lightning round and talking about some of the players Chip played and Steve Denton's name came up, uh, he said, yep, fastest serve almost I ever went against. But I knew if I could get the ball back because I was a pusher, it served me well later on. It's just kind of interesting to hear that from two different guys, you know, about the, about their game. And Northern Cal, which used to be fast courts, uh, you didn't see that many pushers, you know. But that's that's interesting. So, Brett, let's 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 forget about Chip for a while and and, and talk about you. Tell me what you're doing now. Well, I'm just do uh, I have a wellness company, Gary, and. and all you guys and I remember back when you know our age group of guys really started trying to work out be personal I get personal trainers guys had nutritionists getting massages doing yoga and all those type things so I did all those things to try to catch up and to keep up so I didn't have enough money uh, from earnings to pay for my own personal trainer or massage therapist or yoga coach da, da, da. so I learned about all those things on my own so, gosh, 25, 30 years ago, I got certified as nutritionist, personal trainer, massage therapist, and yoga coach. So now I have a company that does those things. We do uh, nutrition, uh, office yoga, office massage to Bay Area companies and private clients. And I also teach I about 15, 20 hours. I teach per week. So Teaching tennis. Course, Teaching tennis, yes, and on private courts and at high school, local high schools in Danville, Walnut Creek. I see. What about old Doug King? Is Doug King still out there in Walnut Creek? No, I haven't seen him around uh, anywhere. I haven't seen Doug King. Um, I write a wellness tip for the USPT newsletter, so I get quite a bit of, you know, I get to interact quite a bit with the USPT executive committee and stuff. I see. But, I see. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't uh, so you're coaching uh, mainly junior players, uh, top top junior players. I noticed you had one down at the, uh, the Easter Bowl. Yeah, at the Orange Bowl and Easter Bowl. Now Madison Weekly, she started me with. 
with with me at uh, five years old and used to take a couple lessons a week and then she got really interested in it and her dad played for the Dodgers and her mother played basketball for St. Mary's hmm. college basketball so two real good athletes and they support sports and pretty well to do so Madison said that she wanted to be a professional tennis player at age seven so I made a business plan, a prospectus for her on, on each step of the way, what she's going to take and where she should be. But pretty much on plan. She's ranked right now 10th, and she's seated 10th at the Easter Bowl, and this is her last year, 14s. If she has one, just one good tournament, she'll be able to get in the top five, and that's where I think she needs to be in the top five to have any chance of going on to having a pro career. Now, you're speaking of top five in the nation. She's currently top ten, I see. Madison Weekly. Well, that's a, that's a name for us to watch. That's right. That's right. Very strong. Why is that, Brett? I've seen the names in that. You're talking about the Boys 12 National? That Larry Gottfried, Jay DeLuey, Juan Farrow, who won the tournament. Absolutely. Keith Richardson. Mm-hmm. When I first went on the pin tour, the old pin tour, the old down there, you know, in, in uh, what we play, uh, home of Louisiana and some of the really, you know, little small towns, and I'd just be hitting the ball cover. I'd ever, ever ball hard as I could. I'd probably keep two balls in and miss four, make three shots and miss five, but it looked really good. So those guys invited me to cover. I used to pack Woody Blocker, Scott Carnahan. These old, older guys, they were like, you know, got to keep the ball to court kind type players, you know, work the point. Mm-hmm. Would see me as a new young guy blasting the ball. They thought, man, that's the coming future. That's the way it's got to be. But I never got in my head the thing that you got, that Mel got, that Beaker got, that Hooper got. All those names in that list got. And the kids aren't getting now. You just can't make errors. If you're making unforced errors, there's no chance of beating anybody. Isn't that true? And, and, and see, you learn that so you learn it so well that you forgot it. When I bring up the hoops, it's like, oh no, it's more about winning and beating other guys. But they see you great players forgot that's your core, that's your backbone. It was so ingrained in you guys that now you're even worried about keeping the ball on the court. You worry about more how can you be the guy who can also keep the ball on the court. 
You know, that's a that's a real interesting comment, uh, Brett. But I, it takes me back to when I first went to Europe to play on the red clay, and and then down there in the south where the America and Mexico where the the altitude was so high, and and you know, you, I also always wondered why these European guys were baseliners and just kept the ball in play. And then when I got over there on those courts or gotten some high altitude, um, you better know how to keep the ball in play and also stand up on the red clay, which was totally different than that hard tree that we grew up in on. But you're you're so right about that. So. Uh, you're out there with a lot of these junior players. You you were at the Orange Bowl, saw the best players in the world. What what's what's the difference now in in terms of the the juniors and the way the game is played now compared to when it was in our day? Well, a good example: the USTA sends out information saying that you know, from the research, factual research, the U.S. Open and Wimbledon, all the major Grand Slams, all the points now are being ended within five, six, maybe seven shots. So they take that information statistically and say, okay, by God, if it's going to be five, six, seven shots, we better get our first strike tennis in. We better get our first big power shot in before they put their fire shot on us. Well, there's another way of taking that statistic here and say, you know, if all points are over six, seven, eight shots, all I got to do is keep it going for nine shots. Uh-huh. And I win. If they're finishing at 10, I got to keep it going to 11. Interesting. You know, it is. And, and, you know, all the thousands of books that are written about tennis, thousands of books to strategy and, and technique, D-L-D, and it, everyone agrees it's the most difficult sport. But if it's the most difficult, shouldn't the answers be that much more simple? And tennis can be one of the easiest sports if you look at it this way. The first guy misses, loses. Interesting. Not the first guy, it's a great shot. Not the first guy, it's a kick serve over the fence. It's a first guy that misses, loses. Now, you can do certain things and make that guy miss, no doubt about it. But the bottom line is the first guy misses, loses. And not many sports that easy. I think track and swimming are pretty easy. You start here, the first one down there wins. You know, that's pretty easy. But if you think about all the stuff we go through to make great players, it just comes down to the first guy misses, loses. And Djokovic is a perfect example of that. Well, I think I think that, you know, it was going through my mind when you were talking about it because you're making some great points here. But what came to my mind was not only Djokovic, but Nadal and Actually, Federer too. You know, sure. Federer's got a lot different shots, but he doesn't miss much either. And you know, I, I guess you know, back in our day, the, of course, the tennis racket frames were so much smaller, and the serves were bigger, and the courts were faster, so there were a lot more missed returns. I watched some of these old classic matches, and their returns miss, and you know, and and now it's different. The courts are a little slower, the rackets are bigger, so. Instead of you know fifty or sixty or seventy percent returns, these people are returning the ball ninety five percent. They're making their returns. It seems like at the top level. Well, you know, I went down to uh, I was down last year. Another thing I'll we'll talk real quick. I want to change the point, but another thing that's happening, Gary, is you know Jackie Cooper. When you played, you had a great mentor, a great coach, Jackie Cooper. But I'm sorry, there's 10 or 15 guys that were your contemporaries, you played, also had a great coach. That's true. And they could have said he was so-and-so with my coach, he used to be 
be a great player. So and so was my coach. He was a great player. Like you know, Zan Geary and all those older guys that were, were all great players were coaching players to help them along like yourself. Now it's all real homogenized. Once you get to be a top ten, top twenty ranked national player, it's all USTA, USTA, USTA National Training Center. Now it's getting worse. They want you to move down to to Orlando and train under all the USTA coaches. Now, there's two problems with that. First of all, it's all becoming everyone's playing the same way. When you played your first round, you played a certain volleyer. Second round, you played a pusher. Third round, you played a blaster. Fourth round, you played a guy stayed back. Sixth, the finals, you may have played a drop shot log guy. You know, it's always every round was somebody different. Now it's all anti-rotic. Big first serves, big forehands. Big first serves, big forehands. If you take Andy Roddick and you take the Williams out of the picture with no way should the Williams sisters be associated with USTA because they quit that stuff at 12-13. If you take them out of the picture, America's had no champions, Gary. None. Why do you think... Davenport? What is Davenport? What is the reason for that? Well, I think, first of all, it's that once you get to be where you need to be, they take you away from your coaches that got you there and they bring you in with all the other USDA national coaches. Now the second problem I've got with that, let's say Gary Plock just graduated from Texas. You know, I don't, don't know exactly, but my story I heard was you hurt your hand or you broke your wrist or something, never became the pro that you probably could have been, the top ten player you were all through the nationals. And now you decide you want to coach. Right? So you get a good player like I've done, you get a good player. Now they want to steal her away, offer a $2 million contract to come to Orlando to train with the national USTA coaches. You think, okay, maybe I'll take USTA national coach job. Well, you're getting $80 an hour cash money in your hand from your student, or you can work at USD National Tennis Center and get $17.50 for your hour. <laughs> so do you want to be a top coaches, go work for USTA? interesting it's so it's uh, it's kind of like the uh, the old system is trying to be thrown out with the uh, dishwash water yeah, I guess and, and you know who knew you better who knew your game better than Jackie Cooper well you make a good point and I, I tell you one of the things that uh, that I see uh, or learned when I was playing and around all the other people that I was playing with is that the, the way you really improved is by watching the great players 
and going out and playing, you know, whether it be playing tournaments, playing sets. I don't know how much, you know, drilling helps after a while if you're not out there playing and competing. Well, that's the other thing, Gary. That's a point. That's a great point right there. You know, all of us used to go play Jack Diddy. I mean, everybody has some guys that you would play, and we played sets, 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 sets. When I talked to uh, Roy Emerson, who came out for the USPT National, I mean, USPT Regional Convention out here, my job was to drive around entertaining, so what a great job was that. And he would tell me his old stories. They would literally, their practice session, Gary, was five sets of singles and five sets of doubles. It took them seven to nine hours every day to get it done. And that's all they did. They didn't do any drilling, didn't do any bucket drills, you know, uh, smash, touching that type stuff. They just played five sets of singles and five sets of doubles. So that's interesting. Yeah, and the kids don't play sets anymore. That's right, that's right. And, you know, it's funny. Roy Emerson told me similar things because I was asking him about Harry Hopman, who you know, was coaching up at Port Washington when we go up there for the Junior Davis Cup camps and the Easter Bowl was up there at the time. And uh, he said, hey, guy wasn't a good coach at all. All he, all he did was run us to death and we went out and played each other and that's how we got better. And um, uh, it seems like that the uh, Europeans that have really gotten good, that's what they did. They went out and played sets like we did when we were kids. We'd go to the park and play about six, eight, sets nine sets whatever it was and then go home but um you know a coach i think has its place in tennis in certain areas but overall if you don't know how to beat that guy and break him down and execute uh, there's only so much a coach can do it amazes me still that uh, coaching is not allowed and <laughs> why they yeah. don't have a coach on the on the chair you know and it's illegal to coach and we know that these coaches are coaching anyway with their secret signals or whatever they're doing, but I, I don't really know from the stands how much that's going to help. No, it doesn't. It is really kind of silly. I mean, even I'm sitting there, we've got the golf app to be on TV, and they've got their caddy who really is their coach. True, you know, yeah. Keeping yeah. them together and telling the distance and what we're going to play next and debating back and forth what's the next shot. So they definitely should have that. I wonder how it's really, you know, the women's WTA is allowing some coaches in some events. Is that right? Yeah, I don't wonder how that's played out for them. If that's helped them or change it at all or or, or help them. But uh, it'd be interesting to see statistics on that. But uh, I think that's the big deal. And then you also, you know, it, it, it sounds horrible, but I always relate tennis to life. And it really is what's kind of going on in American politics and America itself. It's all about quick fix. Mm-hmm. If you can't make a million dollars, you can't make $15 million and move on because somebody else is and move on to your next opportunity. And, and they're playing tennis that way. Yeah. Do you think that... Uh... Do you think there's any monkey business going on in tennis? I know that I'm talking in terms of match fixing and, and point shaving like in basketball. I know one somebody got nailed for that not too long ago. Uh, do you know anything about that? I haven't heard anything about that. Um, of course, we, you know, we played it in Laos any gambling. Did, 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 they didn't gamble on your all's matches. No, no, I don't I never knew anything about that, but I'm just uh, interested in that because, um, you know, especially in the wake of this college admissions scandal that's going on and uh, and all the other things out there with uh, gambling on sports, I just, 
I wondered if that was, uh, Chip has some feelings about that. Maybe I'll talk to him about that because he's got a little more knowledge than both of us on that. Um, so Brett, what do you, what do you think the answer is for, you know, these American kids that just aren't, aren't developing to that top level? You think the system's broken in your estimation yeah, now? I think, yeah, I think it's broken. I mean, if you take a look at the United States, it definitely has the largest budget from the USGA. I mean, the USGA gets, what, 150 million, 250 million from the U.S. Open? From a loan, forget about dues. Everybody has to pay. The, wow. All the hundreds of thousands, how many members there are. They get all that TV rights, get right to the bottom line. Yeah, and where does it all go? You know, you, you've been involved in and out of tennis all your life, but on top of it, have you gotten a dime? Have you ever heard anybody got a dime? I will say this in their defense. The, last year, when they, they invited Madison down to the uh, to Stanford to work with the national coaches, and that's the top ten players in pretty much every division, they invited me down as a private coach, and they paid me five hundred dollars to go down and sit and watch her. Is that right? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't stop bragging on them. I can't believe this is what needs to happen. They didn't let me coach her. I couldn't go on the court. But they want to be down there watching, and they had a meeting for the coaches to talk about what we're working on, how it can improve, and dealy dealy dee. But uh, so at least that's, an, I guess, the, some people are talking about that and saying that's that's not the right way. But you know what they're doing now? USG is just trying anything, just throwing millions of dollars at a problem. They're trying to find the next Serena and Venus. So if you're a junior girl, and it happened out here, uh, the girl named Nanushka, uh, she was number one last year in the 14s, and she just uh, just turned 13. So they gave her parents two million dollars to move to Orlando. Is that right? Still, 13 year old girl, for no uh, with no uh, no other than just to move to Orlando with her parents, train them at the National Tennis Center, and they're trying to bring more and more players like that. To, to Orlando, to that big new training center. Interesting. Yeah, so they're, they're trying some things, but, uh, and, and it, it's a continuation of, you know, it really should be that guys like yourself, Chip Hooper, Mel Purcell, Mark Beek, all these guys, they should be the ones who are driving the USTA. You should be the USTA president. Because you know everything there is to know about tennis. They bring in politicians. They bring in leaders from other businesses. Who cares? We all know how special and different tennis is. It needs someone who understands from A to Z every single thing that goes on. And not somebody who learns it because someone told them. I see. Well, Brad, thanks for your time today. Uh uh, it's real interesting talking to you. I'm, I told you I'm going to get you back on here, and we're going to do it again when Mr. Hooper's around because he might have a few recollections. To I'm going to try to get him to embarrass you in some form or fashion. Well, he didn't want to talk about that back in volley, so please. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to keep that a secret. I'm not going to let him listen to this podcast because I don't want him. We don't need need our our man going into. Uh, any type of uh, negative thoughts. That's right. That's right. Brett, thanks a million and hope to see you around soon. Hey, good. I really appreciate your time and thanks a bunch. Feel free to call. And again, you, you uh, include me any way you can. I help you guys as much as 
can't. Well, really thanks. Know what you guys are doing. I, I tell you what I want to do is I want to play a set with Madison just so I can see what it's like now. Oh, I love that, Gary. That's what I wanted you to do down in Florida when you couldn't make it down. I know. We'll do it next time. Well, thanks again, Brett, and hope to see you around soon. Okay, Gary. Thanks, you, buddy. Bye-bye. Well, this is it for the Chip and Gary Tennis Show for today, and uh, we'll be talking to you again soon.